Welcome back to the Simply Christian Life. My name is Michael Berkel-Hun, and in addition to being the host of your podcast, I am also the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of the Rio Grande, covering the entire state of New Mexico and the far west part of Texas. In this episode, we're dealing with the second half of chapter three of the book, You Are What You Love. As I mentioned in the last episode, chapter three has so much information in it that rather than producing one lengthy episode, I thought I'd divide chapter three into two episodes. So I hope you enjoy this, the second part of chapter three. Dr. Smith digs into uh, an in-depth conversation about worship in the Christian church and how that is uh, sometimes being co-opted by our culture. On page 67, he quotes Michael Horton, who writes, American Christianity is a story of perpetual upheavals in churches and in individual lives. Starting with the extraordinary conversion experience, our lives are motivated by a constant expectation for the next big thing. We're growing bored with the ordinary means of God's grace, attending church week in and week out, Doctrines and disciplines that have shaped faithful Christian witness in the past are often marginalized or substituted with newer fashions or methods. The new and improved may dazzle us for a moment, but soon they have become so last year. And isn't that true of the way we engage in Christian worship? Part of what Dr. Smith does is in terms of engaging his own tradition, which is the Reformed tradition. He talks about how so much of Reformed tradition, and this includes non-denominational worship, big church worship, but also many contemporary forms of worship in our American church life today, how so many of those are focused on both the, uh, the novel and the new, some sense of excitement, and also on the expressive, which is to say, Worship is me going to express my undying praise for God. And so much of our Christian radio and our Christian music is uh, contemporary Christian music is focused on us praising God um, as uh, we are generating all of the energy there. And Dr. Smith really calls those styles of worship into question. Over on page 69, he says, We also tend to primarily think of worship as something we do. So if we're going to properly understand how and why worship is the heart of discipleship, we need to stretch, expand, and frankly correct our understanding of worship. Dr. Smith then goes into a conversation about the Reformation and what it was the Reformers were actually trying to get at. Too often, he says, particularly people on the Reformed side of church life tend to be kind of anti-liturgy, looking at a liturgy in a church like the Episcopal Church or a church like the Roman Catholic Church or a church like the Orthodox Church as being involved in too much human repetition over and over and over, and thus not being authentic. But Dr. Smith, in this chapter 3, says is going to invite us to look at those ancient forms of liturgy in new ways and to call us back to the values that those uh, older forms of worship 
embody. On page 70, he reminds us that worship is about God. It's not about us. Here's what he says. The whole point of liturgical lines and rituals is to create a powerful environment of God-centeredness. Worship is not for me. It's not primarily meant to be an experience that meets my felt needs, nor should we reduce it to a mere pedagogy of desire. Rather, worship is about and for God. Worship is directed to and is for God. And God is active in worship, in the Word and in the sacraments. And that is really something for us to think about today. So many times in the Episcopal Church, we are worried about how do we invite young families and children into church. We know that those families are very busy and that their lives are focused in a hundred million ways. And we think that if we can just change the way we do our worship, that that will attract and retain young people. If we just change the music and make it more contemporary, if we just liven it up a little bit, have each Eucharist be different, that that will help us um, attract and retain people. We want to be hospitable and we want our worship to be accessible. Uh, Relevant is often a term that is used, and yet Dr. Smith reminds us that the very act of Christian worship is not really about us and meeting our needs. Rather, we are entering into a space where God might act upon us, where God might act in our lives, where God might change our lives. And so, in, in a sort of counterintuitive way, all of worship with God is in some ways stepping into a space that is not about me and what I want and what I need, rather stepping into the space in relationship with God is about honestly saying, I want to be changed. My habits and my loves are being so formed by my own self-centeredness and my own desires that I want my desires to be changed so that I'm focused more on God and other people than I am on myself. And Dr. Smith reminds us that entering into the place of worship is not just about being in the presence of God, but it's about God acting. Over on page 71, he says, uh, the governing idea of the Reformed liturgy is thus twofold. The conviction that to participate in the liturgy is to enter into the sphere of God's acting, not just God's presence, plus the conviction that we are to appropriate God's action in faith and gratitude through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, Our worship is about two things. It's about God acting in our lives, and it's about our taking that action of God out into the world, our responding to the movement of the Spirit in our lives. At the bottom of that page, he says, so worship is a site of God's action, not just God's presence. Dr. Smith is talking about how the reformers in the Reformation we're trying to shift the emphasis of worship in church away from just human action to a reminder that it is uh, God who is acting in the liturgy. And for us who are Anglicans, for us who are Episcopalians, you know, the, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican tradition is, we call ourselves Catholic 
and reformed. We are Catholic in the sense that we maintain the ancient forms and patterns of worship, which Dr. Smith is going to talk about in more detail in the, at the end of this chapter, but we, we don't do so in just the old medieval understanding. In fact, our worship has been reformed in some important ways. The Reformation in the Church of England and in Anglicanism, as you know, had some important ideas. One of those ideas was that the worship should be in the language and culture of the people. And that means that the people should be engaged in the worship, not just watching it as observers from outside. A second major gift and theme of our Anglican worship is that we have a book of common prayer. The Book of Common Prayer is a book that is in the pews and accessible in the language of the people. It's translated into all the languages of the Anglican Communion. And it also is common. It is held in common. It belongs to all of us. The Book of Common Prayer creates this community that Dr. Smith is talking about, a community of people who are focusing our lives on God by means of that prayer. And we in the Anglican tradition talk a lot about how what unifies us in the Episcopal Church, what unifies us in the Anglican Communion, is not a top-down hierarchy of power over, and it's also not that we have all signed up to the same belief system. We don't always agree on everything in the Episcopal Church, nor do we want to. What unifies us is our common prayer, the prayer we hold in common, our common experience of God in worship, that is what holds us together. And I, I think Dr. Smith would be, very help, would be very pleased with all of that. But of course, he's not an Anglican, and he's engaging with his own Reformed tradition. And over on page 73, he, he asks this provocative question, has contemporary evangelical worship ended up, ironically, mimicking the scripted naturalism and spectatorish passivity that occasioned the Protestant Reformation. Have we not fallen prey once again to the static medieval paradigm that is focused on God's presence? What he's saying is that so much of our contemporary Christian worship is focused, it's like a show. You come, you show up, you listen to the music, and it's always great music. It's very enlivening, and it's upbeat, and it's exciting, and it's energizing. You listen to a message preached by a gifted preacher, you watch somebody else say the prayers, uh, but so much contemporary Christian liturgy or worship is not, you don't do anything. You go and you sit and you watch it and then you go home. Part of what Dr. Smith is saying is, is really a call for that reformed tradition of worship to change and to go back and rediscover some of those uh, ancient forms of worship, which of course in the Episcopal Church we're still carrying. He uh, notes how much contemporary Christian worship is not really about God, it's about us praising God. And he talks about how so much contemporary Christian worship in terms of how we do it is designed deliberately to be as accessible and relevant as possible. But Dr. Smith says the problem with that is that not just the worship itself, but the form of worship, the shape of worship, the building of our worship, if it looks like our shopping mall culture, the form and shape of that worship will carry with it those same messages 
that our contemporary culture is whispering into our ears. So if you go to worship in a shopping mall and you design your worship to look and feel like a shopping mall, it is going to carry with it the messages that the shopping mall takes with it. And I think that's where so much of our focus on contemporary worship and on novelty and on human expressivism in worship gets off the rails. The shopping mall, as Dr. Smith pointed out in chapter two, the shopping mall is focused on meeting our desires and on giving us new and exciting um, experiences that make us feel like we're changing ourselves by getting new stuff. And if our Christian worship looks and feels like the shopping mall or like the consumer experience, of course we're going to carry with it those habits and expectations that we learned from consumer liturgy. We're going to apply those right to God as if God is there to meet our needs, as if Sunday worship is there to make us feel good, or as if Sunday worship is dependent on us to come and emote, and that if we didn't feel it, it wasn't good worship. Part of what Dr. Smith is going to do in the end of this chapter is shift our understanding of worship away from the consumerist model, which so many of our contemporary ideas of worship are focused on, and get us back to our roots. He does so by inviting us to remember that what we're doing in worship is refocusing our habits. On 78, he says, when we realize that worship is also about formation, we will begin to appreciate why form matters. By the form of worship, I mean two things. Number one, the overall narrative arc of a service of Christian worship. And two, the concrete received practices that constitute elements of that enacted narrative. So he's saying the form the worship takes really matters because it carries information to our hearts. It forms our hearts. Further down on the page, he says, that doesn't mean there's no room for faithful innovation in worship. It just means that creativity and novelty in worship are not goods in and of themselves. We inherit a form of worship that should be received as a gift. And this is something I think we Anglicans intuitively understand. Our love for the shape of the liturgy, which is ancient, and yet translated into our language for today, that form and shape of the liturgy is a very different form or shape from our consumerist transactional culture. Dr. Smith points it like this. He says, I'm not making a case for traditional worship versus contemporary worship. I'm not arguing for pipe organs over guitars. I'm not taking sides about choirs versus drums. Musical styles have their own sorts of forms, to be sure, but that's not what I mean here. My point is at once more fundamental and less nostalgic. Christian worship is the heart of discipleship just to the extent that it is a repertoire of practices shaped by the biblical story. Only worship that is oriented by the biblical story and suffused with the Spirit will be counterformative practice that can undo the habituations of rival secular liturgies. He says that so many of our forms of worship claim the name of worship, but deny the power of worship. On page 79, he says, So while we may be singing songs about Jesus, the very shape or form of our worship experience in fact reinforces the gospel of consumerism 
and the unwitting encounter with Jesus is simply one more commodity. This is important. If the shape of our worship is simply the shopping mall with Jesus on top, that is not going to rehabituate our hearts. It's not going to shape our desires. It's not going to change our lives. And so if we are living in a consumerist culture and we go to church to receive more of that consumerist culture, we're going to be in trouble. And here's where I think the millennial generation and the young people today have a lot of prophetic things to teach our church. When I talk to people who are younger than 40, younger than 30, they are used to being sold. They are used to marketing campaigns. And if they encounter a church that is trying to get them involved by playing to their needs and desires, in some ways they may feel flattered by that, but they interpret that as just another consumerist marketing campaign, this time by a church with Jesus on top rather than by um, an authentic spiritual tradition. And so, so much of what millennial folks are looking for is not a contemporary relevant worship experience. What they're looking for is an authentic spiritual journey with a living God. And I would actually believe and follow along with James K.A. Smith's argument here, saying that our ancient forms of worship, the form and shape of the Holy Eucharist, for example, the form and shape of morning prayer, evening prayer, and Compline, these things actually disrupt the uh, consumerist culture that drives most of our life, and it actually gets us living under a different rhythm. The rhythm of the liturgical calendar moving from Advent into Christmas, into Epiphany, into Lent, into Easter, into Pentecost. This is a different rhythm from the rhythm of the consumerist cycle, and it serves as a counter-narrative and a counter-formation for our hearts. Dr. Smith says it this way at the bottom of 79. Thus, over time, the body of Christ continued to discern the scripts that should characterize a worshiping community centered on the ascended Christ who prayed for the kingdom to come. The result is a rich legacy of worship wisdom that can be inherited by all Christians as a repertoire for faith formation. This is why we can say that the shape of historic, intentional, formative Christian worship is Catholic, not because it's Roman, but because the repertoire of historic Christian worship represents the accumulated wisdom of the body of Christ, led by the Spirit into the truth, as Jesus promised. On page 80, he says, When our worship has a common form, it reinforces our oneness and our unity, which is especially important for the church's witness in our post-Christian age. And so at the end of chapter 3, Dr. Smith invites us to reimagine what repetition might look like. In our consumerist culture, repetition is boring. Saying the same words week in and week out at church is boring. It is dull. Why don't we innovate? And I think too often in our worship, if we focus on every Sunday being unique and different and jazzy, that we end up unconsciously playing into that consumerist thing. The genius of the Book of Common Prayer and the way our Anglican worship is built is that every Sunday it has the same basic shape, but it also has enough novelty, change in readings, change in music, change in sermon, 
so that there is a balance between God always making something new and God tying us to the same traditional roots. So if we understand our worship not as something that is about us having a new emotional high with Jesus every week, and if we don't understand it as the church's job to make us feel good or to feel connected or to feel relevant, but rather if we understand that the church experience is a place that we go in order to have our habits changed by God, then our going to church is like going to the gym in the sense that the gym is boring. You lift the same weights 10, 15 times, it's boring. You're doing the same thing over and over again. It's not about that. If you go on a run, the same route, oh, it's boring, same thing over and over again. It's not about that. It's about shaping your life and changing your life so that your whole loves are being recalibrated and reformed. Dr. Smith says it this way on page 80. When you see worship as an invitation to an top-down encounter in which God is refashioning your deepest habits, then repetition looks very different. It's how God rehabituates us. In the formational paradigm, repetition is not insincere because you're not showing, you're submitting. This is crucial because there is no formation without repetition. We willingly embrace repetition as a good in all kinds of other sectors of our life to hone our golf swing, our piano prowess, our mathematical abilities, for example. If the Sovereign Lord has created us as creatures of habit, why should we think repetition is inimical to our spiritual growth? Oscar Wilde said it this way, learning to love takes practice and practice takes repetition. In some ways, we belong in order to believe. And Dr. Smith concludes this chapter 3 by saying this, The liturgy of the Christian worship is the litany of love we pray over and over again, given to us by the Spirit, precisely in order to cultivate the love God sheds abroad on our hearts. And so, as we conclude this third and now longest episode of The Simply Christian Life, I want to invite you this Lent to dig into the repetition of the worshiping life of the church. Go to church on Sunday. Get to know your prayer book. Pray the daily office day in and day out. And watch the way your habitual engagement with God, asking God to change your heart day in and day out, will in fact change your loves and it will change your life. I'm Michael Hun. Thank you for tuning in to The Simply Christian Life, and I look forward to being with you again next time.